Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, England, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, please visit our website at centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was delivered by Dr. Gabriel Glickman of Cambridge University as the first of two lectures marking the 450th anniversary of the founding of the English College at Dowie, presented as part of the Ushaw Lecture Series. The paper is entitled, Jacobitism and the Conscience of British and Irish Catholicism. Thank you very much. <coughs> it's, a real, it's a real pleasure to, um, to be here. Um, coming up from Cambridge, one particularly appreciates being somewhere with hills. So, um, yeah, very nice to be here tonight. And I want to begin by <coughs> drawing upon a series of letters that are held in, in this collection. Um, the letters written by an, an Irish clergyman, a man called um, Father Walter Thomas Tyrrell, who served for 25 years, um, 35 years, sorry, in France for much of this time as a canon of St Paul's Cathedral in Liege. Tyrrell, like all of the Catholic priesthood of Britain and Ireland, was forced to begin his career overseas because of the legal bars against Catholic worship in the kingdoms of George I. And that sense of being an exile framed his personal and ideological identity. But Tyrrell characterised his displacement in intensely political terms. He was an émigré, he said, not just due to his Catholicism, but because of his allegiance to the House of Stuart, the Jacobite claimants to the throne of England, Ireland and Scotland. It was from the Jacobite court that he received his travel pass, enabling him to move between France and Italy. And that pass proclaimed to Catholic Europe that he had ventured away from his country for his religion and his loyalty, following, it said, the glorious memory of his royalist grandfather, who had fought for the non-Catholic Charles I in the Civil Wars. For over three decades, Tyrrell remained in correspondence with the Jacobite court, he was one of the dwindling band of confidants of the young pretender, Charles Edward Stuart, in the years after the Battle of Culloden. And throughout his career, he defined his allegiance to the Stuarts as a religious obligation. But it was a commitment that frequently brought him into collision with his Catholic superiors in the cathedral and the diocese. Tyrrell resisted naturalization and rejected ecclesiastical promotion in France. <clears throat> he angered Rome by declining an appointment as a bishop in Ireland when the conditions for Catholics eased in the 1750s, because he believed it was against his conscience to serve in a kingdom stripped of its true prince. It was, Tyrrell maintained, the duty very much incumbent upon every true subject of the British nation. <clears throat> to contribute as much as may lie in their power to a speedy restoration. The recovery of the Jacobite cause as a serious feature of 18th century British history has been one of the most significant but also controversial scholarly shifts of the last generation. It is contentious because it potentially reconfigures <clears throat> our whole view of the century. The notion of a prolonged dynastic contest, a war of the British succession that disturbed civil tranquility 
Thoreau the half a century, challenges the received notion of the period as an age of stability. And if a large swathe of people in the British Isles continued to support the House of Stuart, according to the principle of hereditary or even divine right monarchy, then the old narrative of the 18th century as the modernizing age of reason no longer looks quite so robust either. Yet many supporters of William III, George I, and George II indeed believe the security of the throne to rest on a knife edge when James II, then his son and grandson, menaced the reigning monarchs with a shadow court over the water, a subterranean intelligence network, and the persistent threat of rebellion and invasion. Examined in a purely insular British context, the Stuart cause was probably a containable threat, but its importance increased because <coughs> Jacobitism spilled out into a European landscape where displaced dynasties became the instruments for the ambitions of rival powers. Major international wars were fought in the 18th century over the Spanish, Austrian, and Polish succession. Accordingly, the struggle of British governments against the Stuarts would be played out as intensely in European courts as on the battlefield, but also in the taverns, the forests, and the fishing ports that made up the secret worlds of agents and informers. Laws against smugglers and poachers arose in part as attempts to disrupt the supply lines through which Jacobites ferried guns, printed and visual propaganda, codes and ciphers into the British Isles. The threat necessitated the maintenance of a 70,000-strong British standing army in times of peace, and it also provoked a statutory attack on seditious writings that went far further than the laws passed several decades later after the French Revolution. The Jacobite support base in the British Isles was perhaps wider than it was deep, its manpower derived from Scottish patriots wounded by the terms of the 1707 Act of Union. The possibility that most excited the Stuarts in exile came from the promises made by the leaders of the English Tory party, although the definitive verdict on that prospect probably goes to the Jacobite clergymen who complained that the Tories that never write heavy for the cause till they are mellow, as they call it, over a bottle or two, they do not care for venturing their carcasses further than the tavern. But the beating heart of the Jacobite cause could be found within the worlds of the Catholic recusants, among figures like Walter Thomas Tyrrell. Jacobitism, as I will show today, penetrated the culture of British and Irish Catholicism. And into the 18th century, the Stuart cause kept alive many of the discontents, fears, and animosities springing out of the British Reformations. In 1715, the declaration from the bishops of the Church of England alleged that the restoration of the Stuarts, in their words, together with the long train of papists in the succession, can bode nothing but fatal and irrecoverable ruin for, for the British Isles. For two generations, British Catholics sustained the Stuart cause with their prayers, their funding, and the sacrifice of hundreds of lives. Yet support for the exiled princes came at a legal, material, and political cost, 
which raised private discontent among some principal members of the Catholic clergy and laity. The interests of the Stuart monarchs and their recusant supporters were not synonymous. Most consequentially, the cause threatened to set Catholics against their own international church, because in Europe, Catholic monarchs and emperors, even successive popes, proved themselves to be far from unbending supporters of the House of Stuart. For 50 years, as this evening's lecture will show, Jacobitism raised moral, religious, and ideological questions that went to the heart of the British and Irish Catholic conscience. So Catholic commitments to the exiled House of Stuart began in the revolutionary moment of December 1688, with the flight of James II, his queen and infant heir, Prince James Edward Stuart, out of England. The landing of William of Orange was followed by wild rumours of a counter-invasion by Irish Catholics, and that proved to be the spark for a series of mob attacks on recusant estates and chapels around England and lowland Scotland, with violence concentrated especially in London. By the summer of 1689, these pressures had forced a growing cohort of recusant leaders to follow the king into France. And the extent of the exodus can be gleaned from the lists of those resident in Saint-Germain-en-Laye, where the royal family reassembled their court. 220 families were present at Saint-Germain by 1690. Prominent among them, 14 Catholic noblemen, half of the complete Catholic peerage of England. For two years, Catholic, Catholic Ireland held out and many English exiles returned with the monarch to the new theatre of war. <clears throat> but the fall of Limerick in 1691 was the signal for a major demographic dispersal, as 40,000 of the so-called wild geese, veterans of the Jacobite army, departed into exile. To one of those emigres, <clears throat> the English Catholic John Stevens, in his words, I shall ever esteem it the most glorious action of my life that I made myself one of this number who had not bowed their knees to Baal. So this is therefore a dispossession that in some ways is comparable to the flight of the French Huguenots, 50,000 of whom had arrived in England by 1688. And the experience of revolution induced trauma and disbelief among many Catholics. For the monk and former Anglican, Ralph Bennett Weldon, King James came, Christ's living member, in the name of the Eternal Father, to the comfort and profit of the nation, which cast him off to the decimation and ruin of its spiritual and temporal advantages. Many Catholics had quite simply invested too much in the reign of James II, taking office-holding positions, pronouncing public support for the royal agenda, to feel secure now in post-revolution England. And from the beginning of the reign of William III, lay leaders in the recusant heartlands of Yorkshire, Lancashire, and Northumberland engaged themselves in conspiratorial activity. Returning to Yorkshire from Ireland in 1691, Colonel Stephen Tempest was entrusted with 22 commissions sent from Saint-Germain to raise a troop of horse for King James. Papers uncovered from the, the brickwork at Standish Hall in Lancashire and weapons found in the 20th century behind a fireplace in the Scroop family household at Danby confirmed that by 1693, a Catholic secret army had been brought into the north of England. 
at Saint Germain, the Jacobite Secretary of State, the Earl of Melfort, viewed these regiments as the best feather in his wing. In 1715, <coughs> when they finally received their command to ride out in rebellion, English Catholics constituted roughly one-third of the 4,500 rebels defeated at the siege of Preston. But there was more to Jacobitism than military or conspiratorial activity. Support for the Stuarts was sustained as much by a culture, an ideology, and a spiritual and imaginative worldview. This culture was created originally on the continent. Exile entailed considerable financial privation, and anxieties over poverty and starvation hung over the communities who had flocked into France between 1689 and 1691. But exile could also bring opportunities for promotion, preferment, even privilege, in the kingdoms that hosted them. Through the 18th century, the Catholic Jacobite diaspora provided manpower for the French armies, and English ministers fretted over the thousands of Irish wild geese clustering in bases on the Channel Coast. Jacobite officers were in high demand, and for over half a century after the Revolution, we find names from the diaspora appearing in Spanish, Prussian, Swedish, and Russian regiments. Beyond the military sphere, too, the more enterprising Jacobites started to shape their own worlds, entering into the life of the European Catholic domain as tutors and soldiers, merchants and musicians. Few of the emigres proved more industrious than Lady Mary Herbert, granddaughter of the Earl of Powys, who entered into partnership with a Sussex Catholic and financier called Joseph Gage to mine the hills of southern Spain, importing a workforce from her own family estates in England and Wales. The Jacobite cause had to be lived out largely in the imagination, enduring leagues of separation and periods when the political possibilities appeared distinctly fallow. The Stuarts needed to find ways to bind a community lacking territorial or institutional boundaries, to uphold allegiance among scattered enclaves of exiles and among the recusant communities who remained at home. Central to this enterprise was the network of approximately 50 colleges, convents, monasteries and seminaries founded by emigres of an earlier generation across Europe as centres for the education of recusants from the three kingdoms, including, of course, Ushul's parent institution, the English College at Dowie. These institutions resisted assimilation into foreign states and kingdoms, and many of the clergy admitted to being quite deficient in their knowledge of French, Spanish, or Italian. They presented themselves as <coughs> dots of England, Scotland, and Ireland on foreign soil. And they aimed to animate in the minds of their pupils an alternative idea of how the three kingdoms could be, once redeemed in the hands of Catholic princes. Colleges offered practical resources for keeping Jacobitism alive. As places of charity, hospitality, and fellowship for emigrates, they were able to stabilize the lives of, re of refugee communities. The English colleges at Leeds and Lisbon sent stricken pupils to seek a cure from the mythic royal touch. And that practice was accentuated as a sign that God's blessing still resided in the Stuart line, with um, uh, sort of boys from these communities going off to be cured by the touch of the pretender at Saint-Germain and later Rome. 
the, the Benedictine convent at Dunkirk and the English Dominican nuns in, in Brussels obtained papal permission for <coughs> receiving and, trans, and transmitting letters between the exiled court and its correspondents in Britain. Above all, these institutions maintained the ideological machinery of the Jacobite cause, calling upon all the visual, ceremonial, physical, and emotional resources of Catholic education. In the English convent at Yent, <coughs> the chalice veil was, was woven out of Jacobite military banners. The English college at Dowie was the residence of the musician John Francis Wade when he composed the hymn Adeste Fidelis, latterly famous as O Come All Ye Faithful, composed as an invocation of loyalty to the young pretender. After 1701, the colleges collaborated to create a cult of martyrdom around the memory of the deceased James II, representing him as a saint who had sacrificed all worldly glory for the true religion. Under the watch of the English monks at St. Edmund's Paris, the body of the king was venerated with a series of actions designed to stimulate reliquary devotion. James's heart was sent to the convent at Shiloh. His bowels were delivered to Santa Mare, and parts of his flesh were taken for embalmment by the English Augustinians in Paris in 1704. The monks at St. Edmund's maintained their chapel as a place for pilgrims, and they drew up a detailed record of miraculous occurrences around the king's tomb, which they presented in a relentless flow of reports sent into Rome, trying to pressure the papacy into beginning the process of canonization. The Jesuit Francis Sanders prayed that the greatest intercession of the Holy King, as he called James, would be an intercession not merely upon the bodies of diseased pilgrims, but upon the hearts of James's erstwhile subjects, to make Englishmen, in Sanders's words, a little consider what they rejected and what they chose. It was in the colleges that the, Stuart, <coughs> that the Stuart cause attained its grip over the recusant community, as the clergy drummed the virtue of the cause into the minds of their charges and dramatised Jacobitism as the purest way to honour the blood of martyrs, as it was put, that flowed through two centuries of Catholic history. Under the presidency of Father Louis Innes, more alumni at the Scots College at Paris fought in the Jacobite Wars than entered the Catholic ministry, an astonishing statistic in view of the nominal clerical function of that school. Fomented by men and women in exile, the Jacobite cause seeped silently into the lives of recusant communities in the Three Kingdoms. Jacobitism in Britain and Ireland could be festive, even joyful, as a, a coded means to advertise defiance of civil authority. This is an indication of the kind of um, materials kind of sent in or produced. Maria Howard, Duchess of Norfolk, emblazoned the houses of her workshop estate with sprigs of oak on 10th June 1717, the anniversary of the old pretender's birth. The tree that had sheltered Charles II after the Battle of Worcester was also commemorated in the Royal Oak Society, founded in 1743 for the production of medals bearing images of the House of Stuart, medals that found their way into recusant households in Lancashire and Sussex. In gentry society, 
Jacobitism was nourished by a quasi-Masonic sense of secret companionship. And I use that word deliberately because many Jacobites were also Freemasons, and they um, were among the founders of the Grand Lodges in Rome and Paris, one of many ways in which they managed to bait the, to, to bait the papacy. But Catholic Jacobitism never lost its confessional substance. In 1715, the recusants who dominated Jacobite forces in northern England raised banners streaked with the image of the pelican, feeding her young with her own blood, symbol of Christian sacrifice. In the aftermath of that failed insurrection, recusants created a martyr cult around the executed Earl of Derwentwater, which self-consciously mirrored the veneration of his great-uncle, James II. Yearly masses were held for Derwentwater in the Swinburne family chapel at Capheaton. The red velvet cloth that had shrouded his head found its way to the Eyre family at Walkworth in Northamptonshire. Poorer Catholics in Durham and Northumberland armed themselves with purported locks of the Earl's hair, even his teeth, which were sold as relics. Catholic culture in 18th century England was therefore flooded with exhortations towards Jacobite loyalty filtering into the lives even of the majority of recusants who did not take up arms for the cause. So there was no doubt that these commitments came at a legal and political cost. The old penal laws constructed against recusant activity had returned with a vengeance under William III, imposing restrictions on travel, proscribing the protection of priests, the inheritance of the states, and the education of children abroad and tendering oaths to forswear essential tenets of Catholic doctrine. Fears of a Stuart invasion ramped up the old rhetoric of English anti-popery, because Jacobitism presented evidence more explicit than at any time since the gunpowder plot that Catholics were now imperiling the security of the crown. So Catholics stood under suspicion, monitored as closely as the 18th century state would allow, for any, discretions in com for any indiscretions in conversational behaviour. The imprisonment of Sir Roland Stanley in Chester for allegedly wa laying wages about King James's return in 1692 illustrated these kinds of dangers. Now, in reality, the penal laws of post-revolution England were not all that they seemed. Catholics were summoned to take the oath only in moments of national emergency. And in many regions, social connections with Protestant magistrates blunted the application of the legislative agenda. But Catholics nonetheless felt their position in 18th century England to be precarious. With the letter of the law standing against them, the fear was that a change in the political mood, a hostile magistrate or a bout of local political friction could place them in grave danger. A Wiltshire Benedictine voiced his bitterness that my ease, my property, and my life are at the disposal of every villain. Tomorrow his humour may vary, and I shall then be obliged to hide in some dark corner and fly from this land of boasted liberty. As vicar apostolic in London, Bonaventure Gifford was forced to change his residence 14 times in 1715 alone. In this context, the devotional content to Catholic Jacobite commitments coexisted with a more worldly political argument through which recusants sought to sway their Protestant compatriots, latching onto any signs of support for the Stuarts from disenchanted voices in the political mainstream. 
Jacobites argued that the perils befalling Catholics foreshadowed dangers to all Englishmen under the authoritarian impulses of post-revolution governments. Our jails are crammed and London turned into a garrison town, lamented the Catholic journalist George Flint in 1719. And this, he said, confirmed the evidence of history that all usurpations succeeded only when they had, in his words, drained the, the oceans of the best blood in the nation. Flint adopted the, um, the voice of the kind of country Whig figure, attacking rising taxes and standing armies. He lacerated the German Hanoverian influence over English foreign policy, which he said had left the Atlantic fleet neglected and dishonoured. He accused the government of acting like, in his words, feeble spaniels overseas, while all the while they showed the ferocity of lions against liberty and property at home. Standing at the Tyburn scaffold in 1716, the Irish rebel Colonel Henry Oxborough appealed to the same imagined potential audience of Protestant sympathisers. <coughs> he attacked <coughs> the calumny that the Catholics taken at Preston engaged in that affair in view only of setting a Catholic king on the throne. His printed peroration insisted that if King James III had been a Protestant, I should think myself obliged to pay him the same duty and do him the same service. For he said that his loyalty was no different to that of his grandfather, who had fought for Charles I in the civil wars. These arguments fell into line with the declarations and manifestos released from the exiled Jacobite court in its various bases in Europe, all of which promised a free parliament and liberty of conscience for all Christians, but also pledged to protect and defend the Church of England as it is established by law. One leading Catholic courtier, um, the, uh, the old pretender's Secretary of State, John Carroll, said that the Catholics could accept that the Stuarts um, could be Catholic as private men, but would have to reign as Protestants in government. So seeking to try and um, uh, win over a sort of potential audience within the mainstream of English politics. Catholics nurtured the cause in private, therefore, through an intense confessional solidarity. But simultaneously, the public expression of the Jacobite cause obliged them to de-emphasize their Catholicism, to speak outside the confessional fold, and therefore limit the religious expectations invested in the House of Stuart. That um, <coughs> potential tension alerts us to some of the strains um, that crept into Catholic support for the Stuart cause. The interests of the exiled princes may have overlapped with the interests of Catholics in Britain and Europe, but they were not one and the same. As early as 1689, the hopes stirred by the Jacobite movement served to recuperate old national animosities between its English and Irish Catholic components. The Stuart entourage clashed with the Irish Catholic leaders in the Dublin Parliament, whose programme devised in 1689 during the rebellion would have cut Ireland loose from English trading restrictions and transferred back most of the lands lost by Irish Catholics in the years of the Cromwellian protectorate. The, court, the Jacobite court response, summed up by the Scottish Catholic Earl of Melfort, was that in Melfort's words, the Irish had behaved themselves so insolently that it would occasion another war to reduce them to the duty and obedience of subjects. 
For his own part, the Irish bishop, John Maloney, attacked the compromises advocated by James II's circle as evidence that, in his words, there was never any Englishman, Catholic or other, that will stick to sacrifice all Ireland for to save the least interest of his own in England, and would as willingly see all Ireland over inhabited by English of whatever religion as by the Irish. More dangerous for the Stuarts was the posture of the International Catholic Church and the principal Catholic states of continental Europe. The exiled court lobbied Catholic Europe as assiduously as it engaged its supporters in the British Isles. Jacobite courtiers instructed their agents in Rome, Vienna and Versailles to proclaim the the plight of recusants in the three kingdoms, to remonstrate the cruel oppressions they lie under in one instruction, and to locate the Jacobite cause as an international crusade to restore a Catholic prince chased out of his kingdoms for his virtue and religion alone, according to the procurator of the Scots College in Paris. Jacobites maintained an embassy in the Holy See. After 1718, the court itself took up residence in the Palazzo Muti in Rome. The Jacobites were forced to defend their position at a time when international Catholic um, conflict had splintered Catholic unity and driven the princes of the House of Stuart, (coughs) and driven the princes of the Church, sorry, into opposing camps. James II had damaged his position in Europe very severely through his alliance with Louis XIV, whose invasion of Avignon and attempts to control the church in France led to predictions in Rome that he would follow in the footsteps of Henry VIII. Devastatingly for the Stuarts, the coalition forged by William of Orange against Louis in 1688 was backed by Pope Innocent XI, William's descent upon England came with funding from the Habsburg crowns of Austria and Spain, and the revolution was celebrated publicly by Carlos II in his palace at Messina. James II, too Catholic for his British subjects, was seemingly not Catholic enough for his European co-religionists, and through the 1690s, Austrian and Spanish envoys worked busily in Rome drawing attention to the many compromises in the Stuarts' manifesto that claimed to uphold the Church of England in in all of its rights to contest the idea that Jacobitism represented the authentic Catholic interest. Jacobite polemic in Europe was therefore marked by a bitter disillusionment with the condition of the Catholic Church, which rose to its height in 1697, when the peace signed between France, Austria, and um, England and the United Provinces brought European recognition of William III's right to the throne. That agreement was described by one Jacobite courtier as, um, quote, a treaty where Catholic princes exclude a Catholic prince because he is a Catholic. So while Jacobitism may have called upon a deep reservoir of British and Irish Catholic devotion, its spiritual content was not reliably or consistently recognised within the international church. After 1697, the Jacobite court was faced with repeated complaints from Rome about its interventions in recusant religious life. In 1703, a papal edict forbade English missioners from making themselves odious to the government and becoming involved with anything except affairs of the spiritual realm. The troubled relationship between the Stuarts and their fellow Catholic monarchs was reflected again after 1713, 
when the Treaty of Utrecht sealed a new accord between Britain and France and left the exiled court bounced around the diplomatic chessboard between Urbino, Bar-le-Duc, Avignon and Rome to serve the needs of international peace. So all of these altercations added to the pressures on recusant life in England. After the calamity of the 1715 rebellion, the first cracks in the facade of political and religious unity among Catholics began to surface. The most serious sign of internal discontent came in a series of high-profile Protestant conversions um, from the Earls of Powys and Walgrave, the Viscount Montague and Lord Teenham, all the sons of active Jacobite families, the um, um, government of Sir Robert Walpole, if nothing else, highly pragmatic, capitalised on Earl Walgrave's um, experience growing up in Paris as a Jacobite exile to send him as George I's ambassador to France, um, something which the Jacobites didn't terribly appreciate. In, in 1716, then, the fear that Catholicism in England was set to be expunged through conversions and state pressures drove a group of prominent recusants, including the Duke of Norfolk and the vicar apostolic, Bishop John Stoner, to break ranks with the Jacobite zealots and pursue a project of accommodation with the Hanoverian crown. And the papers relating to that project are among the many absolute gems of Catholic history that are stored in, in Ushul. Stoner and Norfolk entered into consultation with a circle of Whig ministers, and they devised a new oath that would renounce Catholic loyalty to the pretender and declare permanent allegiance to George I, his heirs and successors. Stoner bitter, delivered a bitter judgment on a Jacobite party that he said harboured little regard for the thoughts and views of the Catholics and would soon be for the venturing their destruction a thousand times over than wink at their taking means for their preservation. Stoner damned the Jacobite vanguard as comprised, as he put it, mostly of women, younger brothers, people of desperate fortune, whose exalted notions of prophecy and futurity must be broke and exploded, he said, before Catholics might embrace the future. Stoner and his supporters claimed that Jacobitism represented not merely a wrong turn in Catholic politics, but they claimed that it locked recusants into the fetters of an erroneous conscience, in Stoner's words, putting the claims of one pretender who was being forced to compromise with Protestants anyway before the greater good of the church. The accommodationists proposed to put the Holy Roman Emperor, ally of George I, in charge of the key appointments of clergymen, notably vicars apostolic, on the English mission. They suggested to, to George I that this new arrangement would be the best means for George to gain leverage over the welfare of Protestants in Europe, to gain a voice within the politics of the Holy Roman Empire. In 1719, they took copies of the scheme to Rome, with strong backing from the Brussels internuncio. So the oath design derived both its prospect of success and much of its Catholic support base from the primacy of foreign policy on ministerial considerations in London. The pragmatic impulses that you see in this list of alliances rendered the Hanoverians strongly Protestant in the way they represented themselves at home but less than dogmatically Protestant in their choices of allies abroad. 
Ultimately, the plan failed for domestic reasons when the supportive Whig ministers were forced out of the government in the scandal that followed the collapse of the South Sea Company. But the effect was to polarise English Catholic society at political level and at domestic level. The fiery Jacobitism of Maria, Duchess of Norfolk, drove her towards a breach with her Hanoverian husband, who allegedly said that as they followed separate kings, so they should have separate beds. And um, she eloped with her kinsman, Peregrine Widrington, a former rebel of 1715. The new Viscount Molyneux succeeded to his father's title in 1721, kept his Catholicism but professed his loyalty to George I, and secured a position for his stepmother as Lady of the Bedchamber in the Hanoverian royal household. As a child of the Jacobite court, Lady Molyneux demurred, and she was cast out of her estates by her stepson, fleeing across the channel with her daughter and begging for charity from the convent at Rouen. The debate was so vehement because it went to the heart of how recusants define themselves in relation to the English crown, the domestic politics of Europe, and the greater international church of which they were a part. By disavowing the Jacobite cause, Stoner and Norfolk and the accommodationists sought to be recognised not merely as better Englishmen, but as better Catholics. Catholic leaders never in the end formally or collectively renounced the Jacobite cause, though an experimental scheme similar to the one devised by Stoner was attempted in Ireland in 1727. But the 1715 rebellion represented perhaps the high watermark of militarised recusant support for the House of Stuart. News of the rising in 1745 was followed with excitement within English Catholic households. Some gentlewomen in Lancashire eagerly kind of followed the course of the rebels, hoping to gain, gain a glimpse of the Highland army as it marched southwards. But the support base for that um, rebellion was provided by the mainly Episcopalian chiefs of the Highland clans and the equally Protestant landowners of the northeastern Scottish lowlands. The Irish wild geese fortified the French armies long into the 18th century, but they would never be used against the kingdom from which they sprung. In the end, it was the simple reality of military defeat rather than any great intellectual conversion that brought a slow decline in recusant commitments to the House of Stuart. At Danby Hall, after 1745, the Scroop family's smuggled weapons were carefully sealed away behind the fireplace. At Stonyhurst, the Sherburne family's Stuart portraits were moved into an even more concealed part of the mansion. In Scotland, the, the bare gates into Trackair House were closed by the resident branch of the Stuart family to be kept out of use until the return of the king. And by the 1770s, George III was actively enjoying the company of Catholics at court, while the leaders of the English and Scottish missions prepared the ground for a new push for civil emancipation. In the following century, Jacobite commitments among Catholics would be subject to some satirical commentary by the leaders of the Victorian Catholic revival. Cardinal Manning mocked the old recusant leaders as, in his words, the seven sleepers, as he called them, slumbering on their bed of fading allegiances. But this, I think, is to underestimate the richness and vitality of Catholic Jacobite culture, 
and the zeal that it induced in its followers to withstand not merely the injunctions of British Protestant governments, but the papacy itself. Indeed, there is a strong case for saying that enforcing recusants to think about how to engage with their Protestant compatriots and develop a rhetoric in which they accommodated themselves to a nation outside their religion. The arguments used by Jacobites like Henry Oxborough in 1716 passed directly into the campaign for Catholic relief under George III. Jacobite loyalties endured among British and Irish Catholics more persistently as, as a culture than as an effective trigger to armed treason. But I think that those loyalties were no less powerful for that. Thank you very much.